Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who aren't quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Ashvin, and I'm on the phone with Brian. And this week, we're going to be talking about the 2020 film, The Empty Man, written and directed by David Pryor, based on a graphic novel by Cullen Bunn and Vanessa R. Del Rey, and starring James Badge Dale, Marin Ireland, and Stephen Root. In this film, an ex-police officer searches for a missing girl and runs across some supernatural forces and some other random things. If you're new to our show, Brian and I are going to have a spoiler-free discussion for the first 10 to 15 minutes. Then we'll take a quick break. You'll hear some music, and then we'll come back, review the plot, spoil the film, and review it. Brian, had you seen this before? I had never seen it. I remember hearing some buzz about it on our Discord server, really for the past couple of years. And in fact, I think this was requested by some of those Discordians. It was requested by Nima, I never know how to pronounce this, Primna, or Primna, Alexis, and Tyler. Oh, cool. Weren't you saying this might be like our most requested film or something? It's definitely one of, I feel like our most... Most movies, the most requests we get for them is like four. You know, okay. We've got like 200 on the request list. It's remarkable more people don't request certain things. Like I think yeah. they just assume we'll get around to items like the Duck, and they don't request them. Sure. Yeah. So but these kind yes. of like random ones get like, uh, yeah, three or four is like kind of surprising. Yeah. Three or four is kind of like the most people will request one movie. So we're trying to tackle some of those people. I know a lot of you are probably like, when are they going to discuss my movie? And some of you, we just never will. <laughs> there are t- <laughs> 200 movies. They're all pretty obscure, to be honest. People like to request random things they've seen that they thought were good, which is cool. And we'll get to some of them. But, yeah, we could do nothing but requests for the next four years, and we wouldn't get to them all. Yeah. But, I mean, thanks thanks for uh, sending us the request. So it gives us a good list to pick from. Yeah, keep them coming because we, we pull from that list when we're trying to figure out what to cover. And personally... I might check some of them out even if we don't cover them. Same, same. Yeah, the obscurity of this film is uh, interesting because uh, I had seen this before. Our, our mutual friend Kyle had put it on my radar a few years ago, uh, but I wasn't sure like kind of how well known it was. Like, wh- wh- what do you think? Like, does this is this like cult following, or do you think it's falls into that, like obscure film that like a few people know about? I think it's a cult following that continues to grow. I. I still feel like there's going to be some 2020 movies that just continue to grow a following because they got, were supposed to be theatrical and then that got weird and then they just dropped silently onto streaming or VOD and there was zero promotion for them. Like This freaky. movie itself had very little promotion. Sure. Um, even though it was released theatrically, it was supposed to be released in August of 2020 and was delayed to October of 2020 due to COVID-19. And, you know, even in October of 2020, not that many people were going to the movies. Right, yeah. Yeah, it kind of took another year or so for all that to come back. Yeah, 2020, uh, 2020, I think uh, you also had Freaky and The Hunt, which were probably also uh, damaged by, uh, yeah, the impacts of that year. Yeah, and I I firmly believe those movies will continue to grow in in popularity and respect. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, speaking of 2020, I think that was an interesting timing for this film to be coming out because the book, the graphic novel that it's based on is about a pandemic that makes people insane and violent and the need to quarantine. So uh, talk about like a coincidental time. Like, uh, I, I almost wonder, do you think like given the events of like last few years, is there, have you seen a slowdown of like pandemic related films like zombies or things that like touch on like uh, quarantining and things like, are we going to see a pause on that because it like feels too real at the moment? Or do you think we'll see a lot more films touch on that topic? I think it's going to be about the same because it was already kind of dying down just because we went zombie crazy for a while. And I think now it feels too on the nose. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, that you think the volume will stay low then and it, maybe they'll see like a resurgence in a few years. Maybe, yeah. I just don't see any outright contagion films happening within the next handful of years. Yeah, just I agree. <laughs> nobody wants to go there. It's going to be too on the nose, and people don't even want to think about it anymore. Yeah, it's too like soon. it's so funny because we were just talking about that. Like, how is it going to influence movies? And a lot of people, 
uh, proposed that there'd be a wave of slashers, and there kind of has been, but is it because of COVID or not? So many of the national events or worldwide events that influence films, like the Great Depression and World War II and the atomic bomb and Vietnam War and 9-11, they are things that we feel we could have prevented as humans or that our politicians could have prevented. And we have like national guilt over some of them. We have a lot of like stuff to hash out. We, and we have a, a reason to remember them too, either as a cautionary tale or as like a, a way to change the future and influence policy or our own behavior going forward. Mm-hmm. But with the pandemic, I'm not saying there isn't any of that. Like, yes, maybe some politicians were responsible. Yes, we can change our behavior to make sure it doesn't happen quite the same way again. But the COVID pandemic felt more like a force of nature. And it was so depressing for so long. Mm -hmm. Everyone just wants to forget about it. Like, there isn't the same... memory and rehashing and trying to fix that there was with other stuff. We just want to move on with our lives. Like, right. <laughs> so I wonder if it's going to have as big of an impact on the stories we see in film as some of those other movie or world events do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. You're, you're arguing that's going to have less of an impact, right? Because we don't want to like, uh, remember too much of this. It was so recent and it wasn't like necessarily like a, a human, uh, driven like thing that could have potentially been prevented in some in some ways. Yeah, right. It seems like this thing was coming for. It was a worldwide event. Felt like it was coming for us one way or the other. There's not as much to hash out about it as there is some of the other yeah. events. But you know, I, I think maybe it it will be more. Which makes sense with the slashers. Like it, it's going to be more indirect. Like a the antisocial elements of quarantining and feeling like everyone's. Uh, a vector and uh, the politics of you wear a mask and I don't and mm-hmm. they don't, you know, whatever. Yeah, they'll play on that. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. I think we'll, we'll see a lot of films that incorporate like quarantining uh, or maybe like yeah, so, some of the after effects of of uh, the pandemic into like the background of its plot uh, or like as part of the story. But yeah, I feel like there's going to be a pause a little bit on on the like the I, I think before the pandemic we did have a lot of like movies about like things spreading zombie films as you mentioned uh, we had like Bird Box in 2020 which is kind of like uh, some version of a pandemic and then yeah you had this film coming out in 20 I, I think there was like a, a social uh, like a, a Hollywood fascination around this topic which it feels like it's died down a little bit and it could be a while before that's an interesting topic again yeah, agreed. And it's weird to discuss it in, I mean, it makes sense because the comic was about that, but this movie really doesn't have pandemic vibes or global scale. It's a much more scaled back story here. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't know. It does have global implications. Yeah. So I don't want to spoil everything, but the focus of this story is on one small group of people. Yeah, that, that yeah. Let's circle back on that when we get to the plaques. So I'm, I'm not sure what the scale of this movie is. I, I think that wasn't very clear to me. Uh, yeah, death all film. Fair question. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, do you think it's the release strategy, and and that's it? Sounds like that's why this film like isn't as well known as like it should be, and like why like a. I mean, it made like very little at the box office, like four million on a budget of sixteen. So you you, you boil it all down to the the pandemic and the release versus like anything having to do with the film. Um, I think, well, hmm, I think there's a multitude of factors. Like, not only was the there the pandemic, but it sounded like maybe this was rushed, rushed to meet some deadlines, and they tried to get it to some test screenings when it wasn't really the final cut or the cut that the director wanted, and it tested very poorly. So, 20th Century Studios lost faith in the product. And it sounds like what they released in theaters was David Pryor considered it to be a rough cut of the film. Mm. It's polished. It doesn't look a mess, but it sounds like that wasn't his final, like, this is what I want the film to be. Yeah. And the budget is reported at $16 million, but it sounds like there was a change in leadership midway through production at 20th Century. And between that and them losing faith in the film, 
the they only got like 11 they were only able to use 11 million of the 16 million dollar budget okay okay and then there was barely any marketing for the film it didn't have any marketing until like a week before its release or something yeah yeah so it just sounds like they (laughs) the studio didn't seem to care anymore about the movie and i think that that's also a factor. Yeah, it seems like it was a shit show on, on the on the background. Yeah, leadership changing, studios changing. There's also a rush. You know, we talked about this with the Babadook and like how there was funding from Australia. I think this one had like a grant from like South Africa or something or w- one of the countries that shot in, and that was also like putting pressure on the release date in in, in order to get that. Uh, so yeah, it's it's kind of crazy all all the stuff that went on behind the scenes here. Yeah, and they released it under the banner of 20th Century Fox, even though the studio's name was changed just to 20th Century Studios earlier in the year. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Just another example of just, there's a seems like there was a general hastiness going on sure. this, to, to get it to market. And then it was ultimately delayed. So I, I got to believe if you're David Pryor, you were just like, <laughs> you know, throwing your hands up in the air multiple times <laughs> in post-production with this movie and maybe even in production. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be frustrating, uh, seeing, like, yeah, your your vision uh, have that, uh, yeah, go through this experience. The whole idea of, like, test screenings, uh, I'm not too familiar with uh, how that works. Like, how often are movies put in front of test audiences and then based on their reaction, like, tweaked and how many times does that happen before a movie's like ready for mainstream? Have you heard it? Like, is that a process you know more about? No, I don't know too much about that process or how often it happens. But it's a valid question of just like, should it happen? Like, <laughs> should my artistic expression be tweaked based on feedback? Yeah. Musicians don't put out their albums to a handful of people and be like, do you like that chorus or should I change it? It just feels makes it feel gross. It feels like a product instead of a work of art. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'd, I'd argue the opposite. I mean, I, 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 I work in product and like, I think that's like the, the way to get something to like be optimal is like you kind of iterate on it based on feedback. And, and you're right. Like musicians, like it's generally not like a, a practice of like, Hey, we're going to soft release this. Then we're going to pull back and then do it. But I think throughout the development process, they are bringing people into the studio or like sharing it with people and getting feedback from like select groups of people uh, to refine the end product so i don't know like to me i feel like there's a bit of that in like every product you see some refinement based on feedback um but yeah i'm not sure like how formal these like test audiences are uh how how like often that that is a practice and how many rounds of that it goes through i'm really curious about that whole side of the film industry and what is the sample size and who the hell are these people because you can get (laughs) you can get critics who theoretically know a lot about movies right. and or dissecting movies uh, who have very different opinions on a film. Yeah. And you can have Rotten Tomatoes scores that are based off of like 20 critics reviews. So it's just like what? Yeah. We don't think about sample size that much in, in terms of movies. And I, I doubt these test audiences are big enough to right be a significant yeah statistically yeah. significant <laughs> yeah it just it feels dumb to me yeah yeah but i hear what you're saying too like even as a musician you know you got your producer and your bandmates and maybe a couple other your close circle yeah who maybe giving you some feedback and stuff but right. then t- that feels different than submitting it to a a test audience yeah. like a focus group <laughs> i like a focus group yeah yeah we should probably go into those for our podcast every week <laughs> yeah actually i keep meaning to put together a survey for uh for listeners oh to, there you go doing some so, of that qualitative and quantitative yeah, marketing I, w- research. I will do some of that yes yeah. <laughs> because nice. this is not art <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds fair uh surprisingly the director this is only his second film uh he's only he did this in a film called am 1200 which also looks to be horror. He's done like an episode of Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Uh, oh, it was, it was surprising to me. I, I guess, you know, we just talked about the Babadook. She'd only done, uh, I guess she's only done two films as well. So, uh, yeah, surprising to see these directors get like these big projects uh, only being like one or two films into their career. Yeah, 16 million isn't that huge Yeah, in for the grand a, scheme of things. For a budget, okay. Yeah. Yeah, big baller over here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's like low mid. Do you know anything about the comic book? I don't know. I, I don't know anything about the comic book. I know Colin Bunn has worked on, I think he worked on some like X-Men books and Deadpool books. And 
you know, various other comics that people are familiar with. But no, I don't know anything about the book itself. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm sure we've talked about horror films that are based on like graphic novels. Uh, any, any come to mind? Yeah, I was trying to think of that. I, I feel like there's a lot of like dark action type stuff mm-hmm. like The Crow or Sin City that's based off of graphic novels and comics. But I can't think of I meant to Google like horror movies based on comics, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. Yeah. Can you? No, no. There's I probably don't... one real obvious one that people are <laughs> shouting at us, but I can't. I, know. I mean, some of the like, like, I mean, like Walking Dead obviously is based on one of the TV show, but I wonder if like there's. I mean, on... Creep Show kind of is. Oh, but... yeah. There you go. Yeah, I feel like uh, you know one thing. Well, I mean, obviously this film uh, is is complicated. Like it's a, it's a pretty. Uh, in some ways, you could say like it feels like a multitude of films in this movie, and yeah, you know that that feels very kind of comic booky. Like in terms of like the structure of a graphic novel, uh, it might have like a lot of impact in how this story is told. So, yeah, I guess when you move, view a movie like this, and like maybe it maybe more complex than other typical movies, do you give it like some break because of like its source material? No, I never give anything a break because of its source material. Okay. You do give uh, found footage a break, though, when it comes to character development. Yeah, but that's not because of any source material. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. <laughs> it's a filming convention. But yeah. this is actually pretty timely, though, because in the, I was just listening back to the Changeling episode before we posted it, and we talked about like when does it benefit a horror movie, specifically, especially a supernatural horror movie, to add complexity to the plot. Right. And when does it serve the movie to just keep things simple? And I think this film at a two hour and 17 minute runtime might be a great candidate for that discussion. I think so too. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about that with you. Uh, great. Well, I don't have any other background. I guess, oh, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, 75% from critics and 61% from users. So not like terribly reviewed, uh, despite like the poor test audience. Um, sure. You got any other background you want to mention? Oh, not too much worth bringing up. No, I think we could go to the plot. Oh, you got an Ohio connection for us? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, as always, our Ohio connection comes from our friend Alex, who connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, so if you're in the area, swing by. It's a great little spot. And Alex says The Empty Man is a supernatural horror film based on the graphic novel of the same name published by Boom Studios. Boom Studios was founded in 2005 by Ross Ritchie and Andrew Cosby, who had been working in Hollywood optioning and developing comic book projects into films, but became increasingly frustrated with the tights and capes focus of most mainstream comics companies and branched out on their own. Noteworthy Boom film productions include the comedy action film Two Guns and 2023's The Killer. Additionally, they produced a TV adaptation of the horror comedy anthology series Just Beyond on Disney+, based on the graphic novel series of the same name by R.L. Stein, Best known for his Goosebumps book series, R.L. Stein was born in Columbus, Ohio. Ah, yeah. Awesome. Good connection. So there we got some horror adaptations of graphic novels yep. and an Ohio connection. Nice. He answered both of our questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. And where are my keys, Alex? <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the plot then and spoil the film. But before we do, do you mind if we take a quick break? I I just got to step outside really quick. Yeah, sure. Cool. All right. I'll be right back. All right. Hey, Brian. Sorry about that. I'm back. Hey, everything okay? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's, it's been a weird couple of days. Uh, uh, something like I can only pee now outside on like stop signs or fire hydrants. And uh, the only reason I can come up with is uh, a few nights ago, I, I woke up and in the middle of the night, found my dog drooling into my ear and making some weird noises. So I'm guessing it has something to do with that, or it could just be age related. I don't, I don't know if you're having this issue too, where you can just pee Dude. outside on things. Did we watch the same movie? A dog drooled into someone's urine in this movie? <laughs> oh, drool- drooling into my ear? Uh, like whispering something? Oh, in drooling the- into your ear. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> <laughs> All right. 
So this movie begins in Bhutan in 1995, where four backpackers are climbing through some mountains. One of them, Paul, whose name is Paul, hears a whistling noise, and when he investigates, he falls into this crevice. His friend, Greg, climbs down to rescue him and finds Paul sitting cross-legged in front of this giant skeleton. And Paul tells Greg not to touch him or else he's going to die. Greg, thinking that Paul's in some state of shock, rescues him and they drag him to this remote cabin where Paul is pretty unresponsive and in like this coma-like phase. The four of them spend the night as the snowstorm hits. And the next morning, Greg and his partner go out to look for help. Uh, But meanwhile, Paul's partner, Ruthie, thinks that she sees a figure outside in the snow and goes out to ask it for help, but it starts running towards her and she runs back into the house. That night, as everyone's sleeping, we see Paul come to life and start whispering in Ruthie's ear while she's sleeping. The next morning, everyone wakes up and finds Paul missing, and when they go outside, they see that he's sitting by the sledge. He appears to be in some kind of trance, and while they try to wake him up, Ruthie suddenly draws a knife out and kills the other two and herself while Paul watches from his trance. So a lot happens here in this opening. This is like, I don't know, 20 20 minutes or so. Uh, What'd you think of this? Yeah, the title card hits after this and it's 22 minutes into the movie. Damn, yeah. I'll tell you what, buddy. I love this opening sequence. I thought it was amazing. If we had done our top five opening openings of a horror movie episode after watching this, I would have considered it strongly. It's just like really mysterious and creepy. That skeleton thing that they find designed and sculpted by Ken Barthelme, by the way, looks awesome. Mm -hmm. And then just to have this dude sitting in front of it and say, if you touch me, you'll die. is so scary. Then to have him like hovering over this girl and whispering in her ear is creepy. And then this murder-suicide just yeah. paced and shot really well. And then she jumps off the edge of this cliff and we see her plummeting all the way down. That I don't know how they did that, but it looked really good. And, and the figure in the snow. Uh, that was also like another scare in here, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's almost. Uh, I feel like so many openings are like kind of built around a lot of suspense around like one big scare coming. Uh, yeah, this feels like a, a short film in itself because you have, as you mentioned, like four or five different like really creepy and scary things happening, and it's like uh, it's like telling a whole story within like the opening of this film. Uh, it just it, like stands on its own as like a very well uh, developed like a uh, like like short film, like a horror, horror it film. It is. Yeah, it's a short film. Yeah, you, you dug it as well, I take it. Uh, yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, this is, this is a great start. Uh, yeah, awesome, awesome beginning. Uh, so then we jump from 90s Bhutan to present-day Missouri, where we meet our main character, James, who is a retired cop and lives a lonely life following the death of his wife and his son. It seems like it's been a year since they've died. He's approached by Amanda, who's the daughter of his neighbor, Nora, and Amanda tells him that nothing is real, uh, which he struggles to believe. The next day, Nora calls James over because Amanda suddenly has gone missing, and they find the phrase, the empty man made me do it, written in blood on the bathroom wall. James puts his police detective skills to work to start tracking down Amanda and begins interviewing her friends. One of her friends, Davara, tells James about how a few nights ago, her, Amanda, and some of their friends were hanging out by a bridge and dared one another to do this empty man challenge where each of them blew on a bottle to make a whistling noise and then they think about the empty man, which uh, according to folklore will then summon the empty man or something. Or some, something. Uh, Devara tells James the last time she saw Amanda was at the mall and she was whispering in her friend's ear, similar to the whispering we saw at the beginning uh, of the 90s or the, the beginning of the film in the 90s. Uh, later that night, Devara is hanging out in a sauna and is attacked by a shadowy figure, which murders her by stabbing her in the face with scissors repeatedly. And then uh, we see that the figure that's stabbing her was actually in her imagination. It was actually her just kind of stabbing herself in the face. And then meanwhile, James has gone to the bridge that we're all hanging out at and blows on a bottle. And he's surprised when he finds a bunch of Amanda's friends under the bridge where they've all hanged themselves, but there's still no sign of Amanda. So a lot happened here. What, what did you think of this character setup and uh, these sequences? 
I think the sequence in the sauna was really kind of mean and nasty in a good way, like a shocking horror movie moment. And then him finding all these people hanging under the bridge was pretty rad as well. Mm -hmm. But I'm just not necessarily on board with his character. I'm kind of like, who is this guy? Like, why is he in the movie? And it becomes clear later, but... And then it's totally normal for me to have that that question. <laughs> but for now, it's just hard to be, like, on board with his journey, I guess. And then there's this whole Pontifex Institute thing that he's discovered, like, a flyer in a room that's pointing to something else. So mm-hmm. I guess between our recent episodes on The Ring and The Changeling, I'm getting a little tired of the... The investigative portion of a supernatural movie, but I liked these these moments of these scares. Yeah. Uh, what what were you thinking and feeling? Uh, you know, I liked him because uh, I, I thought he was kind of funny and uh, and like yeah, it, just how depressing his life is. Like the opening scenes, like him at a at a birthday party. Or no, at, at a restaurant, like uh, trying to use a birthday coupon and then like getting pissed when they come out and sing him the song by himself. And so I, I felt for this guy. And to me, he just feels like this friendly neighbor who used to be a cop, has lost some family and is like helping his neighbor like track down, like just, you know, doing being a good guy. Uh, so I, I didn't feel too put off by him at this point. Uh, and I somehow it, did not gather that he was their neighbor. Oh, yeah, you know, I don't think I gathered that either. Well, yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you assuming? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think maybe I assumed that. that I mean, like, uh, yeah, sh- just like that they had had some kind of uh, connection between him and, like, uh, Amanda, and, and, like, you know, he knows Amanda's mom somehow. So I thought he was just, like, a helpful, like, friend, I guess, who's like, yeah, you know, your daughter's gone missing. We're friends. I'm going to help you out. And uh, he's our main character because he's got some past trauma. So he's, like, uh, you know, the typical horror uh, main character who's, like, vulnerable or has this past grief that he's carrying around uh sure but and they I, allude to the fact that him and amanda's mom nora may have had some uh romance in their past yeah there's some tension there yep exactly uh, do you recognize this uh marion ireland from uh the dark and the wicked no she's oh wow no i didn't place her there nice yeah she's the main uh actress in that one yep okay cool we should cover that one soon i like that film we covered it already. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did like a shorty. Back in the day, we were doing kind of like mini episodes that were spoiler free oh, oh, okay. on Patreon. So we, we did that gotcha. on Patreon. All right. Nice, nice. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I agree with you that the, the, the scares I thought were really well well produced. Like the, the sauna scene was, was so cool. Uh, the deaths were really cool. Um, but yeah, you're getting a, a, a little bogged down in like, uh, it's just like a typical now like, go to the library, investigate. Yeah, it's a little bit of a here we go again for me. Yeah, it has been a chain of those films. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the Babadook could have used that, right? She should have gone to the library. <laughs> there was no library in the Babadook. Yeah, yeah. I know. Who broke the trend there? Um, well, so, yeah, as you mentioned, one of the clues that James has found on this hunt is a pamphlet to the Pontifex Institute, which all of Amanda's friends seem to have a copy of. So he goes there and he finds, it's, it's like a, a building in St. Louis, I guess, and uh, he finds a cult of people who believe in this theory of the empty man, which I think is essentially this belief that all thoughts and ideas are fed from like some central source. Is that is that what it is? Yeah, and like nothing is real, and uh, it was a mum- mumbo-jumbo to me. There's a lot but. of things, yeah. Combined. Yeah. Uh, and this uh, is explained to him by, I think, like, I don't know if he's the head of the Pontifex Institute, but like some one of the preachers who's played by Stephen Root, who is the stapler guy from Office Space. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He's, he's had quite he, a career since say. Yeah. He's a, he's a versatile guy. Yeah. Yeah. I like him. Uh, he questions someone about Amanda's whereabouts, and they direct him to this remote cabin uh, where they believe she's being held. There he, he so he goes there and he finds some videos that shows some, like a camp, a whole camp. Oh yeah, called, right. Like camp elsewhere. Oh, that's what it was called. Camp yeah. elsewhere. That sounds like a nineties <laughs> song. It yeah, it, it was weird too because I guess not only was I bummed by this investigative journey, but I was like, man, we started off with this like short film in Bhutan. And now here we are at like a summer camp mm-hmm. in rural Missouri. Like, 
what yeah <laughs> I, yeah and like a cult Whatever. or something yeah yeah i know it, it is a really weird uh, thing I, I almost feel like uh this is like a whole different story than like what it we've is seen in the beginning i mean it's almost it is but it's also like trying to explain and and put reason and logic behind what happened in the short film in the beginning but yeah but so I think far that like, goes back to the changeling conversation of like adding complexity and explanation here may not have enhanced this movie at least for me yeah but i i guess like at this point in the film uh like i mean i, I feel like uh i'm not drawing any connection between any of these events that are happening here in missouri to what we saw in the opening yet are you like have you seen like any clues that like this ties back to the beginning yeah i mean all the kids are on a bridge and they blow into a bottle and basically the guy at the beginning who fell through the crevasse like found a little flute and it was when the girl blew in the flute that she saw the empty man Uh, um yeah got it so they're all basically doing what she did, and kind of he, like he heard the the noise that I think was... Yeah, did Paul blow into something, or did he just hear a whistling noise? Presumably he blew into it because he had it in his hand, uh, but everything seemed a little bit more uh, escalated or amped up with him. Like, mm. nobody else went like catatonic like that right off the bat. Yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, sure. So, yeah, there's the whistling that connects everything here. but The whistling and the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> the bridge, too? You're c- comparing the bridge in Missouri to the bridge in Bhutan? Yeah, because I think the, the folklore behind the empty man is like you go to a bridge and blow into an empty uh, bottle. I see, I see. And, you know, they were... And that conjures him. Or them mm-hmm. too. Well, yeah, I mean... Yeah, so so the empty man, like it sounds like a play on like Bloody Mary or like Candyman, doesn't it? Yeah, right. It is. But ultimately, yeah, I guess we we'll get to the end. Uh, I'm not sure if the thing that we see that's like attacking or showing up is like the empty man. I assume like the empty man is someone else in this film. But, yeah, it's a, it gets a little confusing, but yeah, let's keep going. Okay, so yeah, at camp elsewhere. He finds videos uh, showing someone who appears to be under some kind of trance and non-responsive, similar to what Paul was in the beginning. And he also finds a bunch of files with his name on it and Amanda's name on them, so he grabs those. Uh, While he's at the camp, though, uh, he runs into a bunch of members of of this cult, and they're standing in a field in the dark. And when he moves, they start to chase him, and he barely makes it to his car and escapes. Uh, later when he's looking at this content in the files, he finds, uh, in his file, there's all this information about him, like personal photos, stuff about his family, like where he went to school, newspaper clippings, and he has no clue, like, how they have all this stuff. Also, since blowing that bottle on the bridge, he's now starting to get nightly visits from a presence that, uh, opens his front door of his house and, like, seems to be, like, stalking him outside. Uh, so yeah, what would you think of like where this plot was going, the events at camp elsewhere? Uh, were you getting into the story or, or the scares? Yeah, as much as I was like, why is he at like a camp now? I do think the tape he found that was labeled Manifestation 13 or Manifestation 14 or whatever was pretty creepy and just disturbing. Mm-hmm. And then when he confronts the cult there and they're all around this bonfire and it's clear that they see him in the woods in the distance and the bonfire kind of goes out and like a like a light goes on and turns off again it's creepy that was a really cool scene then they start to chase him it's really well done it reminds me of the scene in the void yeah where that they gather outside the hospital this movie actually reminds me quite a bit of the void. Yeah, the void's another one where like the plot just kind of like explodes into all these areas, right? Yes, yeah, it's so similar in that way. And actually the guy who becomes catatonic and possessed at the beginning, well, Paul yeah, possessed Paul is played by Aaron Poole who was the lead in the void. Ah, uh, no kidding. Wow. Small yeah. world. Okay. Small world. Yeah, but uh, I think the confusion here uh, on the plot is definitely building uh, for me. Are you, are you feeling that as well? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. But once we saw this tape... Did the tape explain anything for you? I started to understand maybe what was happening. What? But but we don't know about that till later, so uh, I'm going to 
keep it close to the vest for now. Okay, yeah, you'll have to explain the tape to me. I kind of. Uh, yeah, I think if my understanding of the film is correct. Okay. So James follows the cult members now. He's still on the hunt for Amanda. So he follows a few cult members to a local hospital where they all visit and pray to this man who is uh, sedated in a hospital bed. Not sedated, but uh, kind of like in a coma. Uh, this man, I think, is it known to us now who this man is in the bed? Or is that known, shown to us later? Yeah, I mean, I think we do realize that this is Paul from the beginning. The yeah. same guy in Bhutan who became basically catatonic. Right, yeah. Yeah, for me, this is kind of when like things started to click. Like, oh, yeah, that, that guy's here now. Uh, yeah. So um, James finally finds Amanda now in Paul's hospital room, and she reveals to James that she's a disciple of you know the Pontifex Institute and the Empty Man, and that Paul's body right now seems to feel like some kind of vessel uh, for the Empty Man, and it's fading, and they've needed a new vessel, but uh, they haven't been able to find one, but now they have, and it's James. Uh, apparently, the cult somehow created James three days ago, and his whole backstory is a fabrication. Uh, James has a hard time believing this, but finds himself suddenly in a basement across from the giant skeleton that we saw in the beginning, which transforms into a monster and enters James. Uh, what? What did, did you understand? Like, what? What do they mean? Like, uh, they made James. Like, they was was he not a person like four days ago? Correct. Yeah. He is manifestation 13 or 14 or whatever. That tape was them manifesting him. And part of their whole religion or whatever is that they can manifest thoughts. If they like unify their thought and energy, that thoughts can become flesh. There's some quote in the movie oh. like thoughts become flesh or something like that. Yeah. So that. I realized the entity on the tape or like the creepy looking dude on the tape looked like James. No way. Really? Yeah. A little bit. Oh, so I didn't realize that. Yeah. That was them. And the reason his like daughter's teddy bear was there or something, cause that was like part of the memories they were infusing into him. Yeah. So did he not have a kid and a wife? No, it's just a memory. He's just a, a brand new person and he's, basically that scene of him getting a meal on his birthday was the day he was born like that was his literal birthday damn that is wild and they gave it's kind of wild yeah they gave yeah him basically like paul the catatonic dude from bhutan is a transmitter of the empty man and this like pool of of consciousness and thought hmm or like where thought, all thought begins kind of like, kind of hard to explain because I didn't always understand like their <laughs> whole philosophy. But yeah, that, Paul is a transmitter. His body is dying, so they need a new transmitter. And they, through their collective thought, they manifested the reality of James, our main character, who has no real past and later he like calls Nora on the phone and she's like who the hell is this so what was happening when we saw him engaging with Nora early in the film or even like the police detective like one of them was like hey didn't you used to be a cop uh how, how do you explain that stuff that I cannot explain okay. I don't know <laughs> I don't know if those are just also memories and not what actually happened in the film mm. uh yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, our, our central character, our main character that we've been following around is, is just a manifestation, basically? Yeah, basically. He's he's kind of his own empty man. Wow, that's wild. Which uh, may be a, a double entendre there in the title. Mm, yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, so James, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, yeah, he's suddenly in the basement sitting across the giant skeleton that it, uh, attacks him, it turns into a monster and attacks him and enters James. James, who's now possessed by the, the entity, shoots and kills Paul in the hospital room. And everyone in the hospital, I see you now, bows down to James, indicating that he's the new empty man or the new vessel or whatever. But unlike Paul, he's not in a coma or something. Um, did that make any sense to you? Like why he would be a different version of the empty man versus Paul? Hmm. Yeah. Good question. Why wasn't he like motionless and yeah. 
put in a trance. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't understand. I'm not sure. It's something to do with him being manifested, I guess. Yeah. I didn't say yeah, there are a few things here I don't understand, like uh yeah, why his experience was different. Two, what does all this have to do with blowing on a bottle and then something comes and kills you? Like what 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 are the connection between these two ideas? Right. It's kind of trying to connect a silly bloody Mary type idea of like childhood uh tales to some sort of more as existential, bigger, semi-religious theme. Which, yeah. Yeah, a little weird. It is. Okay, so yeah, I, I didn't miss something that connected those two ideas. <laughs> it was <just> a little <laughs> disjointed. Yeah, I don't think anything really does connect the two. Like, why mm. would you summon this just by blowing in an empty bottle? Right, right. And like, why I mean, does the it... emptiness of the bottle symbolizes that. Yeah. The emptiness of the empty man and the emptiness of everything because nothing's real. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, yeah, why why kill Amanda? Or not why kill all Amanda's friends but not Amanda? Kind of, kind of, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of explanation missing here. But what would you think overall of, of the film? What were your thoughts here? You know, I, in the end, I liked it because there are just so many really cool, creepy moments that. So it's my review for it is almost exactly the review of the void, like really awesome, memorable horror moments, but the plot just kind of is a mess and I don't care. Like I don't care about the main character's plight or his journey. I don't care about a single other character in the film. And I'm just not really interested in what's going on with this cult. Like I like cults. So I'm glad we have that moment of them around the campfire approaching him because it's creepy. But the more he's like going to these institutes and stuff, it's just like this feels like a different movie than a movie about a character who comes to get you in three days when you blow in a bottle. Yeah, I agree. But, I agree. I, I feel like there were too many concepts uh, they were throwing into this film, like trying to f- tie them all together somehow. But uh, yeah, it, it didn't really work very well. And uh, yeah, do you think this is an example of a film where the complexities undermine uh, the plot? Yes. Yeah. yeah and I mean, it's trying to work with such a big idea that maybe it would have been better as like a miniseries or something like that. Oh, but yeah. It's also two hours and 17 minutes. It's just too long. Even if you subtract that 22-minute opening mm-hmm. and say, okay, let's say it was just a two-minute opening instead, it would still be a two-hour and two... Or a, Basically, a two-hour movie. We'll under that. <laughs> yeah. So, it, it's long. It's just unnecessarily long to uncover things that just. Yeah. I mean, that's the the big jaw drop of the movie is that our main character is three days old <laughs> and a manifestation of the collective thought of this cult. So that's supposed to be like a big deal, but since you care so little about the character. It's not that big of a deal. And it's a kind of a weird like catch 22 because I'm here wondering like why don't we know more about this guy or like who even is he? Why is he important to any of this? Mm-hmm. And it's all like hey, you'll find out. <laughs> but by the time I find out, I'm like, well, I've had no reason to care about this guy for 2 hours. Why do I care now? Yeah. Uh, I'm so I'm a little surprised uh you don't find him to be like a character you care about because they do give him a backstory of like he was a cop he lost his family he has like this emotional grief or like this guilt he carries around where he keeps like asking himself where were you and these like flashbacks of like losing his family um and he's kind of funny like every time they try to like explain something i mean he's like look i, I grew up in san francisco which is like kind of a funny way of like saying like you know <laughs> yeah you know, <laughs> he knows like I, I get this hippy dippy shit is that what that's supposed yeah, to yeah yeah i think so so i i i think they gave him like a, a good like a uh, personality and like a backstory and stuff so yeah wh- wh- where do you think they fell short on like making him a character you bought into do you see the newspaper articles like about himself? <laughs> he finds the title of the one article is "Growing Up in San Francisco." I know that's hilarious. <laughs> it's like a weird bit of humor, but I know because he's always mentioning that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. One way to like learn about a character is their backstory and stuff, but also just how they react and act in situations. And this guy just felt like a hollow shell, man. He he gives to me kind of an empty performance. It's it's fitting because that's the intent all along, 
But like I said, it's just by the time it matters, Hmm. I've spent so much time not caring about him that I don't care that he's three days old. Yeah. Well, whatever. That makes sense. But yeah, yeah, he just, he shows no real emotion. He's clearly struggling with his past, but it's, it doesn't really manifest, manifest itself in his day-to-day life other than like flashbacks. And we see that he takes uh, some sort of pill every day, which is next to a wedding ring. Right, right. Also, the answer to where were you is nowhere. You weren't. You didn't exist yet. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really interesting. They kind of like plugged that uh, idea of guilt into him. At, at, and yeah. The, yeah, and they're so slow with revealing what exactly went on in the past. It seems like basically his wife and son were on the way home from Amanda's dad's funeral. He stayed behind to have sex with Amanda's mom, and they got in a car accident. Yeah, but I guess none of that actually happened. Right? But none of that actually happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that part is let down for me at the end when like it unwinds like all this backstory they've been trying to build uh, or show like slowly or like teasing throughout the film like uh, what happened. Um, that that's uh, disappointing. I feel like I hear your point on his performance. Like he's not he doesn't give like any emotion. Uh, to me, that just seems like. Uh, his character like he's an ex-cop he's not an emotional guy he's lost his family he's like kind of like buried that deep inside of him and now he's just like on uh running on you know like yeah the thin air or something that not much going yeah, on running on fumes running on fumes yeah i mean he grew up in san francisco <laughs> yeah he grew up in san francisco, exactly but yeah I, I i could see that like yeah not not something someone you get grounded in um, but yeah, interesting that it plays a different layer because at the end he is like, it, it all kind of adds up like, oh yeah, he's not supposed to be some right. like a uh, deep person. Uh, yeah. Um, let's see. The other thing you said, uh, what else did you, oh, pacing. Yeah. Uh, long film. I, I think you're right. Yeah. It's, it's long, but do you feel like because it's like all these different stories and all these different places, different ideas, does that help the pacing and like keep the film feeling like you never know what's going to go next or like where the scares are going to come from or like what's the next twist that's going to happen? I guess theoretically it could, but it didn't quite for me. It just felt like it was bogged down by its own plot mechanics. Like it's just kind of like, well, what's he doing here in the basement? Like, or like service utility type areas of the Pontifex <laughs> Institute's building. And yeah. why does that matter? I still don't know why that even mattered. And yeah. like, what's he doing here at a summer camp? I guess he learns they manifested him, but why did it have to be at some <laughs> summer camp? I mean, I'm glad we went there for that bonfire scene, but yeah, there were just enough moments like that where I'm just like, where are we going and why can't we get there faster? Mm. Or in a way that makes me care what's happening. All the scares were awesome. It truly stand out stuff like the use of lighting when the cult surrounds the campfire and then chases him is really cool. Like not only are there scary moments, but they're executed really well. Like mm-hmm. the sound, the lighting, the editing. Not easy to pull those off as effectively as they did. So Yeah. I agree. So props yeah. to to uh David Pryor for executing all those so well i just don't really like i can't even decide if i like like the core conceit of the movie like the backbone that this is all about a character who's been manifested as part of this cult like it almost feels irrelevant whether i like that idea or not just because by the end of the movie it's just feel like my care has been beaten out of me yeah I know. Uh, I feel like I reject that idea. Like by the time I get to the end and they introduce that concept that this guy is not even a real person, uh, like I can't even like accept it. I'm just like rejecting it because that means like that just raises so many questions throughout this film. Like why was he then being haunted by the empty man uh, who was like knocking on his door because he blew on that bottle or something? Uh, I just like I'm already like at uh, max capacity now of like trying to process things or like that last bit at the end just like I, I don't have room for it. <laughs> yeah, just, right. I, I know you kind of you get a little bit of mental fatigue after a while and you're just like yeah checked out. Now I got to rethink the whole film, which already didn't make too much sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's it's it's, it's tough. Uh, but yeah, I hear you. it could have been much tighter. You didn't need this long runtime. Could have told the story in a much quicker way. Um, but yeah, I wonder what that shorter cut would have looked like that, like the producers tried to, to launch. Yeah, I think it could have been tightened up for sure. Just like 
there's a lot of shots of him like lurking around the Pontifex Institute. I feel like we could have cut out yeah. a lot of those or even him like talking to that other guy who seemed like he was kind of oh my god <laughs> giving him some clues about like hey these are the kind of people they are like yeah the guy I guess that's maybe how he finds out about the summer camp I can't remember I keep calling it a summer camp <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind of is <laughs> so, summer camp for cults <laughs> yeah it yeah. just feels like there's a lot of fat that could have been trimmed yeah yeah I agree I agree uh one thing I didn't understand was the magnitude of the scare like this sounds like a global thing that's going on here i mean uh basically like you find out at the end like the whole hospital staff is in on it uh yeah obviously amanda and like all these cult people there like did you get a sense for like is this a worldwide thing now yeah it's a the sense is it's kind of growing like the police officer is saying hey we had a case of oh yeah a mother who fed her children to a dog i can't remember the exact specifications of what happened and she wrote the empty man on the wall or something like that. Right. And he has this whole speech about how all these weird things are happening and they don't know what to do. And he says, we can't indict the cosmos, which feels like a heavy handed line, but it's probably in the graphic novel and, and makes more sense in that context. Yeah. But it does seem to be that they're pointing towards this oncoming pandemic of evil. Sure. And why is the empty man, if, if all thought comes from the same place and nothing is real, why is the empty man so hung up on people killing each other and dying? Like, yeah, right. What does that have anything to do with? Yeah. <laughs> yeah the murder I, I angle does know. make a lot of sense here. I think maybe they talked about something about lifting the veil between worlds. So I guess maybe dying yeah. lifts the veil for you and you then go to another world. But hmm. I, I don't know. I, I feel like this, the theme here, I don't know that there really is one to touch upon with much uh, acuteness, but it's kind of like this whole collective consciousness thing is usually something used in New Age religion for good. Like, hey, everyone's connected and you know, one person's energy can feed into another, but it kind of makes you feel feel maybe it's trying to illustrate that this interconnectedness and nihilism aren't maybe that different of concepts or maybe they're different sides of the same coin or a different way to look at the same thing yeah interesting that both like if we're all interconnected yeah. and everything's so important is nothing also important right and nothing matters so right right that's deep that nothing could be, is real yeah yeah right that's kind of the whole empty man philosophy that makes sense yeah but I don't know. They they, yeah. they talk so much about that and seem to say so little. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's a real head scratcher when that happens. Did you, uh, yeah, on, on that theme of connectedness, I think that there's an interesting scene where I think it's like when he beats up that one random dude and he looks around and uh, no one's watching because everyone's like looking at their phone. Uh, I thought they were drawing a parallel to like this idea of like no one has... Yeah, you know, we're all connected, all getting our thoughts fed to us from one place. Is that similar to like cell phone culture or something, or like how or everything's like being fed like down to us through satellites or something? Yeah, sure. And your thoughts are not your own. It's basically what another entity wants you to think. Your exactly. thoughts didn't start didn't start in your mind. They started somewhere else, and they were fed to you. Yeah, like the moon landing. Yeah, and you are an. Uh, they said you're our new empty man. Like, yep. you are empty. You're just transmitting the thought of somewhere else you're a transmitter right exactly and basically that's all any of us are our thoughts aren't our own exactly exactly and i I thought that was the premise is like uh there's an empty man who's like getting the thoughts from like the supernatural entity and what it does is it whispers into people's ears and turns them into murderers to kill people um but i don't think that's actually what happens right that's that the movie doesn't really follow that rule does it not really. Yeah, I don't know why they all are hanged. Like, yeah. do you kill people or do other people? Do you kill yourself? Like, what's the? What are you doing here? Yeah, I, I, it's a little <laughs> unclear. Yeah, yeah. What are your action steps? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah. the first guy he becomes like a transmitter, and then the first, the woman who we see play the flute, 
then she basically murders people and kills herself. Right. And I don't know if that was to protect the empty man or just because that's the MO. Like, yeah, right. You kill and kill yourself and that's. Yeah. The rules are very vague here. Yeah. What happens. Yeah. Right. But, but then like we see our main, that girl, Amanda, she blows in the flute too, but nothing yeah, happens to her. Exactly. She's just a member of the cult. So yeah. it and, doesn't make sense. And aren't all <laughs> her friends like members of the cult, even the ones that like kill themselves? I thought they all had like pontifex. Uh, I don't think they were. Oh, okay. But I'm not sure to tell you the truth. Yeah, yeah. I thought that's why I went there is he kept finding that pamphlet. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if those were the same people who uh, hung themselves. All right. Well, cool. Uh, anything else? I mean, yeah, this is obviously very common. I do wonder if, if in its graphic novel format, if like this type of uh, story plays out better. Because uh, maybe you have like different chapters, you're jumping between like different characters at the same time, potentially. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I think it would play out better. Yeah. In that format. Yeah. But but I agree with you. The scares were kind of like top notch here. And it's it's a shame to yeah weigh those down with such a convoluted story. Um, yeah. Anything else? Or do you want to jump to the rating? Let's jump to the rating. All right. How many scissor stabs to the face would you give this one? Despite my complaining, I still give it a three out of five scissor stabs to the face simply because the scares are enough. You know, they're peppered throughout the movie. Some of them are just super exciting. That opening sequence is amazing. So I'd say after an exciting 22-minute opening (laughs) sequence, the film falls into a dull investigative never know if it's investigative or investigative. Mm, I think it's investigative. Investigative structure. <laughs> With brief but effective moments of horror peppered throughout, it all nets out to an enjoyable ride, but after that promising first act, the rest of the film is a bit of a letdown. Yeah, I hear you. But I, I still say, on the whole, I like I like the movie. It's worth watching. I'm, I'm glad I watched it. But cool. it, nice. It's a weird effect because you're... You start out so strong and end low, and had it been the opposite, I'd be more likely to give it a high rating. But yeah, I feel like I still got to honor how great that opening was and, and how scary some of the individual moments were. Yeah, yeah. Man, playing with expectations is so hard. Yeah, you, you start, you come into hyped or start from like such a high spot, you like only have one direction to go in. Yeah, it's yeah, it's tough. Yeah, how about you, man? Uh, I'm right there with you. I'm a little bit higher. I'm at three and a half scissor stabs to the face. I think it's as you mentioned. It's it's uh, full of fun and well produced scares. And I actually thought it, the the main character was uh, pretty engaging. So like, I kind of watch him like kind of go through this journey of like finding out that he's fake. Uh, but unfortunately, I think through all of its twists and turns, the audience might find themselves feeling like they're in a totally unrelated film by the time the movie reaches its finale. Because, uh, yeah, I know for me, it was, like, hard to tie the dots and, like, make sense of the whole thing as, as a concrete, like, story. It definitely has a lot of holes in it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of the nature of a supernatural movie. When you try to explain it, the holes become even more more prominent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I, I still think simpler with these movies is always better. Uh, I'm still waiting for that movie where, like, the layered complexity adds a lot to the story. Right, right. And to be clear, we're not saying no movie deserves complexity, but specifically these supernatural ghost <laughs> stories. Yeah. Uh, typically, the less complicated, the better. Yep, yep, for sure. All right. Well, anything else? That's it. That's all I got. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our discussion on The Empty Man. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That's going to help other people find our show. And we always appreciate the feedback. You can support our show on Patreon.com for as little as a dollar a month. You'll get access to some fun bonus episodes. You can find the link to that on our website, as well as links to our social, uh, our social things. things. Yeah. Uh, if you want to email us, you can email us at podcast podcast at horrormovieclub.com. We're going to announce next week's movie on Facebook and Twitter in case you want to watch it before the next episode. We're also on Discord where you can find us and other listeners and fans of horror. The link to that is on our website. Our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. Check her out on Etsy.com. And until next time, if you're having trouble remembering certain details of your past, it may be because you've only been alive for the past three days and are a product of a local cult 
that needs to harvest your body to serve the greater good. So don't dwell on it too much. You're in good hands. <laughs> Wouldn't it be easier to just let go? I know, right? Nothing matters. <laughs> you were never there. Exactly. 